it's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, October 25th, 2010. Hoo-wee, what a weekend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know you're all, you know, we, we want to hear the debate. Yeah, I, I, we're working on it. We're working on it. I'll keep you posted here in a second. Get you up to speed. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I'm your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, goal of which is to help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said. And uh, if you were in attendance at the uh, conference uh, that I was, uh, well, I debated Doug Padgett on the doctrine of hell at uh, then you know that, well, there were some crazy things said. So <laughs> let me let me start off by saying right off the bat, I want to thank each and every one of you listeners that showed up in attendance. And I got to tell you, it was just absolutely fantastic to be able to meet some of you all. And I appreciate the support for you all coming out. And, uh, you know, I it, again, it it just meant the world to me to be able to meet some of you and um and uh, there in Newburgh Oregon and uh uh and you know kind of on a side note uh, one of the uh, one of uh, the listeners who wasn't able to attend but her her she sent her husband uh, on a delivery errand uh she uh, gave me a set of fuzzy bunny slippers uh and my wife has already absconded them i i want you to know that um uh, and my wife said, oh, these are so cute. But uh, she also wrote uh, a very heartfelt uh, letter that went along with those fuzzy bunny slippers. And uh, and I got to tell you, out of the whole weekend, I, you know, that reading that letter on the plane home. Um, I, yeah, that that's probably some of the best treasure I've ever had. And, and um, I might share it in a future edition of Fighting for the Faith. But I just wanted to say thank you. So uh, that being said, let's talk about the debate. Let's talk. <laughs> oh, man. Let me kind of bring you up to see where we're at right now. Uh, right now, you know, the debate uh, was on Saturday. And so that you kind of understand the format of what happened on Saturday. Um, on Saturday, there was two debates that occurred. Uh, not on Saturday itself. There was a debate on Friday night between uh, Dr. James White and Bob Sengenis, who is a, a Roman Catholic apologist. And then on sa- on Saturday afternoon, uh, Bob Sengenis, James White, Doug Paget, and myself all delivered uh, 45-minute to one-hour-long lectures that laid out our theological presuppositions. And uh, for Bob Sengenis and James White, it was kind of a post-mortem. And for Doug and I, I, I it was more of laying foundation. And so from the, you know, so uh, Doug delivered, uh, he was, he, his lecture on his presuppositions roughly took about 30 minutes. Mine took about 45 minutes. And, uh, and then, uh, then two hours later, Doug and I debated each other uh, for a good um, uh, three hours, three, it was a three hour long debate. 
And uh, and I, I think what was, you know, I, I prepared you all. I tried to prepare you all ahead of time, uh, basically saying, listen, you know, I said last week before I even left for uh, Oregon, I was not going there to defeat Doug Paget or to lop off his head. Uh, I was invited to give the affirmative thesis and to give the biblical uh, and to give a, basically a clear and coherent uh, defense and presentation of the facts regarding uh, what the Christian Church teaches regarding the uh, afterlife, and uh, specifically focusing in on the doctrine of hell. And uh, in, if you're not familiar with academic debates and how this goes, uh, then you know what happens is I have the affirmative thesis. I have to prove it. And uh, Doug Paget does it. His job is not to prove a negative. Uh, he, uh, if he wanted to sit up there with a bottle of you know uh, of bubbles and blow bubbles the entire time, he could have done that. Instead, his uh, his uh, role was more or less kind of the agitator, you know, to try to shoot holes in what I, what it was that I was saying. And so the, the I have a metaphor that I think kind of explains what his job was. Uh, if you, uh, my daughter, uh, my uh, my oldest daughter, middle child, Christina, back maybe about five six years ago she played soccer and uh, one of the se- the seasons that she played soccer the uh, what happened is is that uh their coach was like r- really good at what he did and uh, what he he created a, p- a particular pos- a position for Christina and her job yeah she was known she played the position of pest <laughs> Work with me for a second. I know what you're saying. Well, I've never heard of that position, and I know all about. Well, in Europe they call it football, and actually everywhere in the world they call it football. Here in the United States we call it soccer. But uh, you might know about this sport, and you may have never even heard of the position of pest. And so uh, my daughter's job was t- uh, she would play defensively against uh, the, uh, the the opposing team's forward, kind of in a one on one position. And uh, her job was to get into the head of of their uh, of their leading offensive scorer, and so my daughter was amazing at this position. <laughs> I am not kidding. <laughs> she the stories of what my daughter would do are legendary. And so let me let me give you an example. Uh, at one particular game, you know, she, you know, we were playing. I forget the name of the team now, but. Uh, she, you know, they they identified who who the lead scorer was, the lead offensive person on the uh, on the opposing team, and so she would come up to that girl, you know, at you know while you know things were still kind of warming up in the game. Early on in the game, she kind she come come up to that person and say, "Hi, can I be your friend? <laughs> I really like friends. Would you like to come over to my house sometime? We can play Barbies together. That sounds like fun, doesn't it?" And so she would just continue on. It's just talking to this person, and like this crazy talk. And then she'd say things like, "Have you seen The Wizard of Oz?" Yeah, I like the character of the Tin Man. I think he's hot, don't you? And and she would say <laughs> just these absurd things and <laughs> and so her job was to basically get that person out of the zone so that they wouldn't score. And wouldn't you know it, her team went all the way to the finals that year. And uh, and they, they ended up coming in second place uh, overall, you know, in, in all of the different leagues and divisions that they were competing in. And uh, But uh, she was just gifted and talented. And you're thinking, you know, Chris, um, knowing you and what we hear about you here on the radio – 
Uh, it, it makes perfect sense that your daughter would have the gift of pestiness. And so uh, she she just, oh, I, you know, every time we the game was over, I'd say, so uh, how'd it go? And she, <laughs> she, she would uh, explain what was going on. In fact, what happened is I remember one game in particular. Uh, the, 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 <laughs> the girl that she was paired up with and was, uh, and was being pesty towards, she, <laughs> she stormed off the field <laughs> and said, I refuse to play with that girl in my face. Get her away from me. So anyway, so that, that, this is, this is all kind of a picture. I, you know, I'm telling the story with a reason. So, uh, Doug's position in the debate was pest. I mean, that, that's how I interpreted it, you know, and I knew this going in. And so, um, that being the case, you know, I mean, my job was to clearly present the evidence. I had no idea where Doug was going to go with this. I mean, because he's postmodern, he could have gone any direction that he wanted to. And he did. And, and, uh, and so I had some strategies set out a- a- ahead of time. I had particular strategic goals that I wanted to achieve in the debate, understanding the limitations of the format and what it is my job was to do. And uh, so let, let me explain another part of it. Is So what happened is, is the, the way the debate format went is, is that I, gave, I was given 20 minutes to lay out you know, my case. You got 20 minutes, you, and that's not a lot of time. And uh, Doug had 20 minutes to basically at that point – begin his pestiness and uh, and begin to start to you know try to f- pull out his flak gun and and see if he can shoot the plane down and um and then from there we had rebuttals and uh, then from there we we there was two periods of time when we got to ask questions of each other and the rules of the debate were were set up in uh, such that when i was asking the questions i couldn't make statements and if he was uh, running long in his answers, all I had to do was say thank you, and then he had to stop, and then I could ask him another question. And uh, and you got to understand something: neither Doug nor myself are professional debaters, and uh, you know, both of us are uh, are radio guys. And so, uh, you know, he he has a radio program; I have a radio program. And so, uh, you, you and neither one of us are college professors, and no, I don't even think either of us wear tweed. I just, you know, something I, you know, so I, you know, that being the case, uh, you know, Doug and I here we're put into this academic debate format, and neither one of us, I, I think, are really truly academicians. Is that a word? Anyway, so you, you understand what I'm saying? So it was kind of funny, kind it, 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 from my point of view, it was. Rather interesting to see how each of us tried to kind of adapt to the limitations of the format as we went along. But, you know, I think we at some point we kind of got our, you know, got into the groove and kind of got used to the how the format works. And so, um, you know, the goal here is to play for you all of the audio. Now, I need to we're not going to be able to do it on today's program. We're not going to be able to play all of it yet because we're still getting the files in. And as we're getting the files in, one thing uh, is very clear is, is that. For whatever reason, the the quality of the recordings is not optimal. It's it's not the best quality, and so we're trying to figure out how we can fix some of this at this point. And I'm not sure how we're going to do it. I'm going to do my best, and so for you know anyway. That being the case, you you kind of understand what the format is, and what and so all I could say is right off the bat, um, you know, my my initial impressions of where Doug came from were. Wow, I anticipated some of it, and some of it, it's like I couldn't have anticipated that 
um, even if I had, uh, ha- you know, had taken LSD and uh, and 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 uh, experienced some kind of psychedelic trip that would have prepared me for. Yeah, you know, no, there's no way I could have anticipated it. And so, um, Mike, let me kind of lay out some of my goals in the debate. Number one, give a clear and concise and defensible position that shows. Uh, that Jesus Christ himself was the one who was the clearest teacher on the doctrine of hell. And I I keyed in on the passage, uh, the parable of the weeds, from uh, the eyewitness testimony given to us by uh, Matthew. And in the parable of the weeds, Jesus gives a parable, and then he interprets the parable and gives us how to properly and literally understand it. And so that's where I, I focused in on, and uh, and and then from there spun out some other passages that uh, that that clearly teach it. And one of the things I wanted to do uh, was completely avoid uh, uh, the uh, the passages that I know that liberals uh, go after. And you know, the, the the reason why is is that having spent a lot of time in cult ministry and uh, doing work in in reaching out to Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, this is where I cut my teeth theologically. Um, I, I, I've learned over the years that, um, you, for instance, if you're talking to a Jehovah's Witness, they are uh, very well prepared for the person who wants to argue with them about the deity of Christ. And so that being the case, um, when I talk to Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, I don't go there first. In fact, I may not get there for a while when I'm, when I'm talking with them. Instead, I try to go where I know their weaknesses or or where they haven't spent a lot of time because that that then kind of throws them off their game so to speak and gives me an opportunity to preach the gospel. I did the same thing with Doug. So, um, you know, I, I I've been really studying hard on the doctrine of hell since J- July of this year. And uh and so you know, a very uh, the books I've read, I, I I know the liberal arguments, I know the strengths of those liberal arguments, I know the weaknesses of those liberal arguments, and so what I did is uh, I worked up a uh, uh, you know basically a presentation in such a way that uh, the liberals haven't gone down, and uh, and that would require Doug to kind of think on his feet rather than uh, rather than running into the teeth of of the standard liberal argument, which I knew Doug would be familiar with, and it showed in some of the things that he said. Um, I didn't want to go that way, and so the, the, I went I went a completely different way with that. And uh, and the the other uh, the the other primary goal that I had in mind was not let Doug's uh, you know Doug's arguments get to me personally. Uh, because and, and you know, oddly enough, that was the easiest thing to do. The reason why is because this is not my theology. I, I I haven't built my own personal theological house of cards that I feel compelled to defend. And in, instead, it's it's you know I got to tell you, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I mean, it's absolutely liberating, absolutely liberating, to not have a, you know my own personal theological. Uh, ideas that I have to defend. Instead, it's it's just absolutely freeing to know that that what I'm what basically the stream that I'm in is is basically the historic Christian faith as handed down to us by the apostles uh, and uh, the prophets. And um, I don't have to, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not interested in creating my own theology. And as a result of it, I don't I I don't have any personal skin taken off of my teeth 
when uh, somebody attacks the theology because it's not mine, and so I, I don't I it I don't have anybody you know basically the way I put it, I don't take it personally when people attack the theology. The way I look at it is you don't like what God says, well then your issues with God, not me. I'm just kind of the messenger, and so uh, you know that the, my my other major goal was to not uh, let Doug get to me, and he and he never really did. It was uh, it was rather interesting, and then uh, on the the third goal after that was to deftly, and and uh, the, the best way I can put it is I wanted to carefully, during my cross-examination, ask him tough questions, but not be jerky in how I approach those questions, uh, because... Uh, you know, I've I've seen I've listened to several uh, debates leading up to this, and 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 sometimes the tone of the debates, you you, you know, um, I being somebody who's trained salespeople, one of the things I told my uh, my salespeople, especially those who uh, would have to interact with customers over the phone, I was not part of a phone sales thing. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, but uh, the, those uh, salespeople who had to regularly interface with clients over the phone, one of the things I've, I I told them was is that people can actually hear you smiling. I, it's something I strongly believe. And so when somebody's frowning and they're upset and they're and they're being condescending, you can hear all that. And so um, anyway, it, you, you get what I'm saying. So um, the I didn't want the uh the question and answer period to turn you know the the cross examination to turn into to use Doug Paget's own phrase a really bad lawyer show because here's the deal I'm not an attorney and I don't play one on television nor do I play one on the radio and so um I didn't I you know I I think that would have been just awful if uh if you know the tone of the debate turned into two guys trying to kind of pretend that they're attorneys and you know and I don't even watch like you know those legal shows you know and so I mean I don't know how to behave as an attorney I'm not an attorney and so uh what Doug and I wanted to do was during the cross-examination time rather than being far away from each other we actually made a point of putting chairs in the front and then during the cross-examination sitting right next to each other and uh and having it be more of a conversation again you know uh, being who we are, so and I think we succeeded at that. So then the, the trick was to ask tough questions, let Doug answer, at, redirect uh, on some of those questions, and then you know let him make his point, and um, and then let let what he said speak for itself. And um, you know I wasn't trying to stump him, I wasn't trying to trick him. Instead, I wanted to ask tough questions of his theology and his position, so that. Um, people could see it for its for itself. You know, I, I I didn't want to speak for Doug Paget. I wanted Doug to speak for himself. And I thought that the idea was is that at the debate, since we were taking two opposing positions, that I would use my cross examination time as a means of trying to you know, tease out some of his theology. And during the first round, I purposely was less. Um, I wasn't as combative as I was in the second round. The second round, I asked the tougher questions. And uh, that was on purpose because I, 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 don't, I didn't want to dehumanize him. I, that's, you know, that, that was not my idea. And so um, I personally think that it was very interesting. And what's funny is, is that 
um, somebody came up to me during one of the breaks saying, oh, Chris, your Facebook walls completely exploded because we were able to stream the event. And uh, it was hilarious to, you know, you know, I, I didn't get a chance to check it during the debate itself, but afterwards I went through it. And it was funny because you can tell that people were con- they were they were throwing in their two cents uh, while Doug was throwing in his, you know, was making his statements. And then what the most amazing thing happened at the end of the debate, um, uh, we they collected all the audience questions. And what happened is, is that um, they had a ton of audience questions it's like almost every you know it, <laughs> it wasn't a very big audience but they got you know it, it looked like almost everybody threw in a question and what happened is is that i only received two questions doug on the other hand he received all of the rest and it was a hefty 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 stack of questions and <laughs> here's my interpretation of that okay and that is is that you know the way I interpret it is I'm the one who had the positive thesis, okay? And uh, what's funny, uh, Ken Cook, who was the moderator of the debate, you know, he, he says in all of his uh, experiences, either in audiences or in moderating debates, he's never seen anything like this. Usually, at the end of the debate, uh, you know, there's usually equal questions for both presenters, but in this case, I mean, I got two. He got I don't know twenty five thirty questions which told me that I did a reasonably good job of of presenting my case biblically and putting it forward and defending it and Doug on the other hand the statements that he made which were radically inconsistent radically inconsistent that I had succeeded in some part to ask enough of the right questions to so that Doug got out his ideas and I'm absolutely convinced that his ideas are inconsistent but he he speaking for himself didn't do a very good job of convincing people that his ideas could be grounded in reality and instead they were you know I let me just put it this way people saw him for what he was postmodern and a postmodern subjectivist and um and as a result of it he got a ton, ton, ton of questions, and as a result of it, I basically feel like you know I achieved what I set out to do uh, with the limitations that I had, knowing that I couldn't, that knowing what uh, the position Doug was going to be in. I, 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 it was really nice yesterday on uh, on the flights home to sit down and reflect on what had happened, what I said. And how it all went down, and then the comments that were made to me by you, the listeners who were there, and by the folks who were part of the church uh, there in uh, Newburgh, um, that um, over and again, the thing that you know, you know what I was hearing is, I, I can't believe that Doug said this, or I, I I don't even know how to make sense of what he said there. And so what happened? <laughs> this is this is hilarious, but I I consider this a victory in this sense. Um. um the thing that people left from the debate saying is they were just absolutely flabbergasted and floored by the things that Doug said. And um, I think that's a good position to be in. You're thinking, well, don't you want, Chris, don't you want people to come away saying you defeated Doug Paget in the, and, uh, and that you won the debate? No. No, because here's the deal. The case that I gave speaks for itself. It's clear, 
it's defensible, and it's based upon the eyewitness testimony of God in human flesh. It is what it is. And um, the fact that afterwards everyone was talking about the crazy things they heard Doug say, yeah, um, that I think is worth its weight in gold. And I know that as the debate audio gets out, that many people are going to be they're they're they're, <laughs> they're going to experience this postmodern conversation themselves, and they're and they're going to come away going, I what? <laughs> Not because of what I said, but because, you know what, I took the punches. I took the punches, and I didn't hit back in uh, below the belt in a way that was obnoxious. And, I, you know, I, the, like I said, my case speaks for itself. The evidence speaks for itself. You don't believe me, I'll, you'll, hear, you'll hear my case. And uh, anyway, you, you get what I'm saying. So for, for the balance of today's program, we're going to take a break here in a minute. For the balance of today's program, what we're going to do is I'm going to play for you the audio of my presupposition lecture. Uh, this this will and you, this is in, this is important because there were some people who showed up for just the debate and they missed this. And if you miss this part of what I said there at the uh, conference, then you don't have the fully developed case that I made because I use my presupposition uh, lecture as a means of laying the foundation that I built my argument for uh, the case for hell on. And so what we're going to do is we're going to play that today, and then over the next couple of days what we're going to do is we're going to, you know, as we you know, clean up the audio, that, audio files that we're getting uh, from the debate, uh, then what we're going to do is we're going to play the, the, the whole debate uh, for you, and uh, I'm not sure how that's going to work out, if it's going to be one program or a couple, and then you know, and I and I want to do one that's like running commentary. So the idea is, I'll play the debate for you with some running commentary, and I'll also make a, an addition of the debate available without any commentary. You know, so uh, what you're going to hear on the program is going to be kind of like you know, you know, when you get a DVD and they and you have the, uh, the director's comments, you can go into like special features and you can watch the Lord of the Rings with the director, you know, making his comments along the way. Well, so well, that's the that's the idea here is that how we're gonna how we're gonna do release all this stuff. So, and uh, I apologize that we don't have everything ready to go today. It's it's just uh, with all of the limitations that we have regarding the files that we're receiving in, in the time frame that we're receiving in, and the ability to clean them up, we just don't have any other choice. So, you know, that's what we're gonna do for today's program. And uh, you know, with that, uh, let's go into our first break. If you'd like to. Uh, Email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Reaching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> It's... 
Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait, Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam dunks from the foul line. That's a birdie. The crowd is going wild. When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch, and then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Paget are double-teeing Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Paget grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slapshots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We're back. Warning, postmodern deconstructionism and subjectivity do not determine truth. Just a thought, you know. know. 
need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions to yeah, partnering with us in order for us to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to partner with us with, you can make a one-time contribution by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that along to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, so what we're going to do right now is we're going to jump into my presupposition lecture, which was given immediately before... Uh, the debate, and is actually very instrumental in my overall presentation. And so uh, it, we'll play this today, and then as we get more of the audio files and clean them up, then we'll be able to uh, post the rest of the audio for you. So uh, one of the things I'm going to do is, uh, for those of you who follow the podcast on uh, iTunes, you will see a link to a PDF file today that will be my the PowerPoint slides that I used for the presentation. I should say Keynote because I'm an Apple guy and I don't particularly enjoy uh, Microsoft products and I use Keynote and not PowerPoint, but you understand what I'm saying. So uh, there'll be a, a PDF. So if you want to follow along, uh, those of you who are listening via podcast, if you want to follow along in the slides that I'm using Feel free to do that. It will actually help you in the debate. Although, you remember back when they, uh, when I was growing up, they had like these Disney uh, books that there was a cassette tape that, that that went along with them, and then Tinkerbell would would go bring, and then that would tell you to turn the page. Yeah, I I'm not going to be doing that. So you you're going to have to figure out when I make the breaks and I move over to the next slide. You know, just saying because Tinkerbell don't work for me. So. <laughs> Anyway, so uh, without any further ado, here is me. Here, here, here is I. Um, uh, my presupposition lecture at the uh, Believers uh, Reason Conference. Um, and um, anyway, you, you know what I'm saying. Here we go. Welcome to our fourth and final lecture. I hope you guys have enjoyed yourselves so far. I know I certainly have. Uh, our, our final lecturer for the evening uh, will be Chris Roseboro. Uh, he will be debating Doug Padgett later this evening. Uh, he is the captain, kind of a weird term, of, of Pirate Christian Radio. And, uh, well, that's Fighting for the Faith. Host, of Host for Fighting for the Faith. He doesn't want me to do this, but I'm going to introduce him how I want to. He's everybody's favorite Lutheran. <laughs> Chris Roseboro. I'm very 
disappointed with how theological and philosophical conversations have broken down in such a way that there's a lot of talking at people but not talking with. And so um, I'm very proud to say that Doug Padgett is my friend. And uh, found out we both have the same personality type. Not sure how that happened. Um, are we related? <laughs> but, um, and as a result of it, I enjoy his company immensely. And uh, there are times when we have very stimulating conversations, times when we have passionate conversations. And the goal always is to, uh, is to exalt Christ. If we can't share and con converse with our theological differences in a way that doesn't turn somebody into Satan, then we're not being consistent with what the scriptures say. Because the scriptures say our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is for flesh and blood. And so, there's this wonderful passage at the end of one of Paul's letters uh, to the Thessalonian churches that talks about people who disagree with, their doc with, with sound doctrine. And it says, you can't be in fellowship with them, but treat them as brothers. And so, uh, hopefully we can do some of that tonight and, uh, and model maybe a different way to converse, a different way to debate. Ultimately, it's about ideas, and, but even more than that, it's about God's work. It's about Christ and crucified. Now, you notice I have fuzzy bunny slippers on up here. Now, I will not be exchanging my boots for the fuzzy bunny slippers for this very reason. These will become the focus, and not what I'm saying. As a result of it, thank you for the fuzzy bunny slippers, and I will wear them often. <laughs> Those of you who listen to my radio program, you understand. Okay. Hell. Theological presuppositions. I've been studying fascism and hell for months now. And somehow I think the two go together. But... Um, it's really tricky in dealing with hell, and the reason why um, is because we've got this little problem known as evidence. How do you talk about a place where you haven't been? Has anyone been there? Now, there are people that send me emails suggesting that I should become a resident in this place. Okay. And uh, I, I hope that uh, that doesn't happen, but um, so when we talk about hell and we talk about theological presuppositions, there's some important things that we've got to look at. And so I, I, I put some, some thoughts together in PowerPoint. Don't tell Dr. Rosenblatt I used PowerPoint. He will disown me and I'll have to turn in my Lutheran card. Um, presupposition. Knowledge of God or what he has revealed does not constitute a special category of knowledge that transcends the bounds of rational thought and empirical inquiry. I think many times we think that God knowledge, God statements, God language, that somehow because now we've said God, that all of a sudden it goes and it comes into the special category where only subjective and innovative ideas somehow rule the day that's not anchored to anything except for the air because I mean we all seen the, the paintings there's angels and clouds and God with his finger going like this and nothing's ever touching the ground and so we do that with God knowledge and I think that's actually the wrong way of looking at it okay uh, put it a different way Immanuel Kant and his disciples uh, talk about the noumenal and phenomenal divide 
And um, roughly speaking, this is not exactly how Kant talked about it, but this is how it's been played out by people who follow Kant, is that the noumenal is the spiritual, and then you got the phenomenal, and, and you got the, you know, the things that are happening here in the earth, and things that are tangible that we can touch, and then you got the spiritual. And in Kant's system, there's a barbed wire fence and high security um, you know, brick wall guarded by dogs between the two realms, and we can't really know anything about the spiritual uh, because we live our lives here in the material. Kant kind of is a, is a modernist in a sense, and to which I basically say, hogwash. <laughs> okay, hogwash. Um, God has shattered this distinction even before Immanuel Kant was a glimmer in his Oma's eyes. <laughs> and so, um, God is not sitting up in heaven with his hands tied, going, oh, I can't cross this divide into the physical realm. That's not even close to reality. So, uh, the question then comes up, when we talk about hell, or anything religious, why should I believe one religious claim over another? Especially when it comes to the afterlife. Okay? Um, the reality is this. The religious marketplace is full of competing ideas, theologies, metaphysical claims, regarding the origins, nature, the fate of humanity. Uh, let me give you some recent ones that we should all be familiar with. Muhammad Atta, okay, he follows a religion. Some would say a perverse form of religion. I will not be debating that tonight. Yeah. But um, he believed that after he, his martyrdom, uh, he would be rewarded in the afterlife with 72 virgins. Is it true? Is he currently in paradise, enjoying the company of the 72 virgins? Or 72 former virgins? <laughs> He's been dead for a while, you know. Yeah. Well, how about this one? Uh, Heaven's Gate. Uh, the followers believed that they were traveling to the mothership that was hiding on the other side of the Hellbach Comet. Okay. Were they right? Is that where they are right now? Have they reunited with Elvis? How's he doing? Can we get word? Okay. Well, there's another religious idea in the marketplace. We've got the wheel of reincarnation. Okay? We've got rebirth. Okay? This is a very complicated system. You know, because in Buddhism, you're desiring to have no desires, which seems kind of self-contradictory. But then you've got all these different things. The whole thing is to get off the wheel. Right? So, continual cycle of death and reincarnation, death and reincarnation. And hopefully you're coming back and you're progressing into more noble animals like cows. <laughs> Is this real? Is it true? Is this the fate of humanity? To escape the wheel of reincarnation? Well, how about Mormonism? <laughs> <laughs> Will Glenn Beck fulfill all of the requirements of Heavenly Father, aka Elohim, regarding the law of eternal progression, take up residence on a planet of his own along with his spirit wives, and be part of the next generation of men met the requirements to become gods. Is that real? Is that what's going to happen? Will Glenn Beck be deity? Well, then we got the historic Christian claims. I mean, Jesus will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, the Nicene Creed says. Some will be resurrected to eternal punishment in hell, while others will be resurrected to eternal life in God's presence on a new earth. Is this true? I mean, 
Is this what really is going to happen? And boy, in the marketplace, we've got some honorable mentions here. Uh, we've got uh, purgatory, which uh, Bob and Jenna discussed last night. How about universalism? What about annihilationism? What about materialistic atheism? This is also known as there is no afterlife when you die in worm foodism. Honorable mentions also include the religions of ancient Egypt. I mean, don't you all remember seeing in the Book of the Dead the guy standing before that really creepy, gross-looking deity that looks like it's going to bite your head off and your heart's being weighed against a feather? Is that what's really going to happen? Or how about the Hellenistic beliefs in Hades and Tartarus? Right? Well, well, here's what it comes down to. These competing claims cannot all be true. As uh, the late professor Edgar Sheffield Brightman of Boston University put it, a world in which both Catholicism and Christian science are true would be a cosmic madhouse. And I think he's right. So, what do we do? How are we going to decide? Is this what we're left to? Just pick a spot, wait for the wheel to stop and the ball to drop? Next presupposition. Without objective evidence to support a religious claim, the language statements made by any religion, including Christianity, don't exclude ourselves from that, may be nothing more than gibberish or poppycock. Without evidence, the statement, hell exists, and humans who are not saved will spend eternity there, may in fact be nothing more than pure nonsense. May made it make as much sense as the sentence, blue sleeps faster than Tuesday. Notice there is a noun and a verb. Okay. So, I'm working from this idea. Authoritative expert evidence is the key. Without it, we're just whistling in the dark, and there's no way to determine whether any competing religious claim is true or false. Like I said, pick a spot on the table, wait for the wheel to stop and the ball to drop. So we need something. We need expert authoritative testimony regarding hell. So with that in mind, let me talk a little bit more about my presuppositions along these lines, and I have to apologize ahead of time. Now, it would be really easy for my critics at this point to say, Oh, I can't believe Roseboro said that. Look how he's trivializing the topic. Trust me, I'm not. So, but I will apologize ahead of time. With that being said, brace yourself for the next slide. <laughs> that is a map of Disneyland. I used to work there. And if you've worked there, then you know that you would never say, I was an employee of Disneyland. The term is cast member. And there's reasons why, okay? But work with me for a second. Let's pretend you've never been to Disneyland. And there might be somebody here who's never been. But you've heard that this is a vacation worth taking. You know, and you know, you've got vacation coming up, and you're thinking you want to go to a warmer climate during the winter months, and Disneyland is on your list. But you know, you just don't want to go to Disneyland. You kind of want to understand, why is everybody always talking about Disneyland? What is this Disneyland thing all about anyway, right? We've all been to amusement parks where they have roller coasters and you basically get motion sick and then they have big trash bins and I've visited them before, but those don't quite leave the impression that Disneyland does because there's not a lot of rides that have trash bins and yet everyone talks about going to Disneyland, okay? 
So you decide you're going to do research. And in Disneyland, I'm going to do research. Okay? So you embark on Disneyland research. And you come across, well, a blog post. This is a fictitious character, by the way. This is just to make a point. This person doesn't really exist. So any, any coincidental incidences where this might reflect the feelings or views of a real person, purely coincidental. But as you're surfing the net, you come across a, a blog post by Helga Lennon, who calls herself a theo-poet, an anti-colonial activist and community organizer, whose op-ed column, The Goddess Mystery, appears in the Huffington Post. And she writes of Disneyland, although she's never been there, um, quote, there's nothing magical about the Magic Kingdom. In fact, the Obama administration should shut it down because it is a cesspool of American colonialism, oppression that glorifies 1950s homophobic Judeo-Christian sexual stereotypes and is a haven for Pizza Tea Party conservatism. That was the Holy Spirit. Okay, Helga's never been there, but she has very strong opinions about the place, right? Then, meanwhile, you do some more research. Tourists who vacation at Disneyland and written about their experiences on their blogs or their Flickr stream or whatever. And then you find other places where cast members, past and present, talk about Disneyland and try to help you understand the Disneyland thing. But all of those are kind of secondary sources, right? But then there's Walt Disney himself. Now, I know he's dead, and I know he's hoping to come back because they froze his head. <laughs> and I, I'm really hoping the best for him. Okay? But that being the case, well, I can't really have a conversation with him, but the good news is that there's lots of documented evidence where Walt Disney talked about Disneyland. Why he made it, what's it about, what's his big dream and vision for it, and it's all there. It's in the public record. You can go and you can look for it. So what you decide to do is you decide that you're going to kind of set up a spectrum of authority regarding Disneyland, okay? And you realize that Helga, although she's against the tea parties, probably when it comes to Disneyland, her authority is like right there, next to zero. Okay, strong opinions though. And then you got tourists. You know, they're, they're kind of climbing up the authority ladder. And then you got the cast members, past and present. But then you get to Walt Disney. Again, the quintessential authority on the place, having never been there. If you want to know what it's all about, you need Walt to tell you about it, right? Okay? No one goes better than him. So that's what we're looking for when it comes to hell. Because unless we can get somebody who has a same authority regarding Disneyland as Walt Disney, regarding hell, we actually may be guilty of blaspheming God, because the doctrine of hell is not a politically correct and tidy doctrine. There's implications regarding it that talk to the very nature of God himself. And so um, we got to be careful when we speak of this place that we don't well, decide to go on a fanciful tangent like Dante did in the Inferno. <laughs> but instead, soberly look for somebody who can speak to it on that level. So, that's kind of my ideas and presuppositions, but a little bit more. So, I work from the presupposition that the truth of Christianity rests on certain historical events. If they're true, then Christianity is true. If they're false, then Christianity is false. 
There's no point sticking around with Christianity if it's false. Seriously, there's a lot better things you can do with your time. Okay, golf and hedonism are two of them. And this is what Paul argues. Christ has not been raised, that our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins, and those who fall asleep in Christ, well, they've perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, well, we are, of all people, are to be most pitied. And you're thinking, are you saying what I think you're saying, Chris? Well, yeah. If Jesus isn't raised, I'm going fishing and playing some golf. I've picked up an extra day over my weekends where I can do what I want to do. Because there ain't no point hanging out with people who are having religious experiences if Jesus is out rotting somewhere in some garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. Right? Dr. Craig Hazen of Biola University writes, We simply have to come to terms with the fact that Christianity is indeed testable. It's a religion for which evidence and reason count on a, in a dramatic way. But God does not appear to be in the least bit insecure amid the controversy, not hesitating to inspire his apostle, Paul, to throw down the gauntlet and not even unlock the door, but throw it wide open and invite investigation into this remarkable God is not threatened by questions. He's not threatened by inquiry. He's not threatened by investigation. Think about Thomas. Remember he missed that first meeting? <laughs> you know, Jesus appears. And he didn't believe the testimony of the apostles regarding the resurrection of Jesus. Does that sound familiar? And so he says, I will not believe unless I put my hands on his side and touch the marks on his hand. So, you know, a week later, Jesus shows up. And Jesus doesn't say to him, you moron. What do you do? Don't you understand religious knowledge about God fits into this other mysterious box where we can't investigate it. You just have to reach out with your feelings, Luke. Feel the force. No, he says, touch my hands. Put your hand here on my side. Stop doubting and believe. And what does Thomas do? doesn't even say that he touches Jesus. It's immediately this. You're my Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't chastise him for that either. He says, right. You believe because you've seen. Blessed is he who has not seen and believes. Jesus invites questions. Jesus invites doubters to come and touch and see and investigate. He's not threatened by those who want to pull out their empirical measurements and instruments and come at him with everything they got. Jesus has got nothing to hide. And so I think with this, we're getting at what I think we need when we're talking about evidence and presuppositions regarding hell. Because I think what we're finding in Jesus is somebody who might have the authority to talk about such things. So then the question comes back down to the New Testament. Because 
here's the deal. I can't call Jesus up and say, hey, you know, um, we're doing this debate thing, and I really think it would be really helpful if I could, like, summon you, and if we could, like, maybe put you right here, and, you know, could you answer some questions for us? You know, because Jesus and I are like this, right? It doesn't work that way. Not this side of the resurrection. But you know what? It did work that way for a whole group of guys that Jesus picked personally. He appeared to them many times in many ways. He ate fish with them after he had raised from the dead. And Jesus, for whatever reason, wants us to trust in who he claimed to be through the testimony of these men. But then the question comes, can we trust the testimony of these men? I mean, after all, we're dealing with the Bible. It's God's word, right? Okay, because it, when we buy a Bible, I mean, mine, I've got the brand new Lutheran study Bible. This thing is bigger than a phone book. Okay? It, I mean, I actually had somebody tell me, side note, that, um, I don't like that Bible. Why don't you like the Bible? Because the notes are more than the Word of God, and that just shows that there's something wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, when you know Greek and Hebrew, then come talk to me. Anyway, um, but the, it, it, has, it has gold trim on the outside of it. I mean, you pick the thing up, it feels like it should be the Word of God, right? <laughs> I don't know what the Word of God is supposed to feel like, but, you know, it's what we do these things. And, you know, you open it up, and immediately the lights dim a little bit, and the light shines. Okay. I think that's how we sometimes think of the Word of God. But let's not, if we're going to look at the New Testament documents, because this is where we find out about Jesus, okay, we don't want to naively assume it's inspired by God. Nor do we want to naively assume infallibility and get into all of that, especially in this particular case at this moment. Okay? We don't want to engage in circular reasoning. So what have we got there? Well, in the New Testament, which, by the way, it's a library. It's a tiny little library of four Gospels, a bunch of letters, and then this thing called the Apocalypse of John. Revelation. And... Uh, unique little library, but for intents and purposes, let's focus on the Gospels for a second. What we learn when we look at these documents is they contain historical biographical information regarding the life, teaching, deeds of Jesus of Nazareth. We find out where he was born, where he died, important things that he said, important things that he did. Okay? Now immediately saying, going, well, wait a second, there's miraculous information in here. So... Since when did a miracle somehow disqualify this from being history? See, that's how the modernists, modernists think. They think that they can just approach a text with a bunch of presuppositions about what's possible and not possible, and then when they hit the text and they go, well, I have this presupposition that says that God can't ever break into history. God's stuck on the other side of the bridge, using your term, and he can't actually come and meet us here or do anything in our lives. That when we find out, you know, hear a story that God has done that and did something miraculous, immediately we must assume that, that didn't really happen, and what's going on here is embellishment or legend-making. Jesus, Superman, you know? No. That's not how you approach the text. You, let, you have to let the text speak for itself. You put your presuppositions aside. 
Last time I checked, in order for you to know for sure whether or not a miracle is possible, you kind of have to be God. Because it's a big universe out there. And I haven't been to a lot of it. I haven't seen all the things that are to see. I don't know all the things there are to know. I don't know how the whole fabric of the thing works. So I can't just a priori just say, this isn't possible and this is possible. Who am I? I, just, I, I was born in Torrance, California. I live in Fishers, Indiana. You know? And I'm an underweight fat guy. <laughs> now, two of these Gospels claim to be written by eyewitnesses, Matthew and John. Gospel of Luke apparently was compiled by interviewing and recording the testimony of eyewitnesses. And the Gospel of Mark, scholars debate whether John Mark was an eyewitness. It's fun to watch scholars debate about these things. And then you wonder, okay, why are you debating this? Because we have not better things to do with our time. But still, that's an important thing, I guess. But um, there's good reason to believe, though, that Mark's Gospel account, that they were the preaching notes of the Apostle Peter. This is what folks in the early church tell us. At least that's the story that came up about it. Okay. And uh, his, uh, his eyewitness testimony blends really well with the other. So, okay, we got that. Okay. So what you do with the Bible is you apply the same standard tests. You don't say because it claims to be a holy book, we have this whole new set of tests that we're going to apply to it that we won't apply to any other ancient text because, well, it has claims about it that just seem a little far-fetched. And you just apply the same tests. Okay. You trying to determine its reliability. Um, you know, the same test, test you would apply to, you know, the stories about Caesar crossing the Rubicon, you know, the histories of the ancient world. And uh, there's simple tests. You've got a bibliographical test, you've got an internal evidence test, you've got an external evidence test. These are standard tests. When I was doing my minor in history at Concordia University, these were tests that we worked with. I remember writing papers about strange old documents and fragmentary things. I mean, this is like going to the hardware store and saying, I like a hammer, a screwdriver, and a nail. These, that's what these tests are. They're pretty common, they're pretty ordinary. So when we take the bibliographical test, simple test, just kind of looking at the link between when the autograph was supposedly written and the earliest copy of the document that you have. You know, for instance, you know, you look at uh, Aristotle, there's like a 14 year gap. You think about from the time of Christ to the tail end of the Middle Ages. I mean, that's how long of a gap there is from when it was supposedly written to our earliest manuscript. You think, that's a long time. Not really. You know, you look at the, I mean, Homer, we probably got about a 400 or 370 year gap. Okay, so you, you get, that's kind of standard stuff, right? Well, with the New Testament, really, really small in comparison with the rest of the documents of antiquity. Short period of time. Short period of time. And this is just one of the tests. So, give me an example of some of our earliest manuscripts. When you talk about the John Ryland's papyrus, it's a fragment written both sides of his codex. And that goes to AD 130, portions of the Gospel of John. Uh, the Bodmer papyrus, 150 AD, most of the Gospel of John. Then we got the Chester B. Papyri in 280. Major portions of the New Testament are on that. Codex Vaticanus 350. Codex, Codex Sinaiticus 350. Entire New Testament, half the Old Testament. And then, of course, in uh, Old Testament studies, you know, the Qumran caves and the Dead Sea Scrolls have just opened up a whole new 
wonderful, wonderful time capsule of stuff. It gives us a, a picture into what was the major thinking religiously of this particular sect, the Sistine sect, and, uh, and they have a copy of the book of Isaiah that's 400 years before Christ. And the difference between that copy of Isaiah and the, uh, the next oldest, like a fraction of a percentage point difference. It just shows that these people, they really took a lot of time to make sure that they were copying the stuff down on it. Okay, so then you look at how many copies you got. Well, nothing else comes close to the New Testament. There's 24,000 different copies, you know, from fragments to full-blown. And we're finding new ones all the time. So, you know, when you just look, what does it all mean? Well, as, jo as Dr. John Ward Montgomery puts it, he says, to be skeptical of the resulting text of the New Testament uh, is to allow all of classical antiquity to slip into obscurity. If you want to somehow, you know, say, listen, New Testament, you're the red-headed stepchild, and we're going to beat you, okay, because we don't like you, and we're going to give you, you know, have a special way of treating you, then what happens is if you were to be consistent and apply that same, your, your same bias against the New Testament as you would to the rest of antiquity and all the other documents, then we know nothing about nobody know-how before, like, the modern era. Okay, that's what it boils down to. So we got external sources. I won't go into too many of these, but you got Josephus at his antiquities. He actually mentions this as a disputed passage, but I'm quoting from the non-disputed text, which came through the Muslim tradition. The nice thing is, is that Christians weren't the only ones who copied stuff. Muslims did too. So this is actually from the Muslim edition of uh, antiquities. Uh, Josephus mentions Jesus. He says, they reported that he, Jesus, had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion, and that he was alive. So you got external sources talking about Jesus. Other external sources, you got uh, Pliny the Younger mentioning Jesus um, in uh, AD 112. Wrote a letter basically, what do we do about these Christians? They're kind of bugging me. They, the Christians, they're in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day, Sunday, before it was light. And they sang, they sang alternate verses. That, they sang a hymn to Christ as if they were singing to a God. That's 112. It's not very long. Wait, there's more. I'll even throw a three set against your knives. <laughs> this is a line of argumentation that a lot of people don't take a look at. But because I spend a lot of work in patristics, uh, I find this to be very compelling. Ancient church fathers quoted the New Testament exhaustively. If you're a member of the Pirate Code, then you know I've posted uh, copies of uh, Clement of Rome's epistle to the Corinthian church. Late first century. And he's quoting John, he's quoting Paul, he's quoting Mark. And he's quoting all these documents authoritatively. Okay? Quotations of scriptures in the works of the early Christian writers are so extensive that you could actually re reconstruct the entire New Testament minus 11 verses um, you know, within 200 years of Christ. Yeah. And uh, that's Harold, J. Harold Greenlee who made this statement. And the nice thing about J. Harold Greenlee, he's a liberal. Um, Sir David Dolly Rumpel, what a name, uh, pointed out, though, that the, when the, the uh, final analysis is only 11 verses that are missing. So what happens is, is that if you take a look, it's kind of on a timeline. Before Nicaea, you know, 325, just in the writings of Polycarp, Hermas, Barnabas, Clement of Rome, Ignatius, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexander, Tertullian, by, what is it, 212 A.D.? You can quote all of the New Testament minus 11 verses just from 
There ain't nothing. There ain't nothing in antiquity that even comes close. It's like Mike Tyson versus Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> I'm dating myself. Anyway. So, um, then you got this internal evidence, which is rather interesting. Um, Dr. John Moore Montgomery is the one who did the work on this, although he sprung board off of the uh, work of Gary Habermas from Liberty University. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 7. Habermas points out the fact that what we have there, it grammatically, is a creed. We probably have the earliest Christian creed recorded in history in 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, here's what Paul says. For what I received, it's kind of an important word, I'll get back to that. I passed on to you as a first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. There's that according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. You notice that little refrain there, right? The scriptures. And he appeared to Peter and to the twelve. He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at the same time, most of whom were still alive, but some had fallen asleep. Okay? So, this, that's kind of the basis of this. But when we look at that, you find First Corinthians was written in the early 50s. So, uh, that's what? 20 years after Christ's death and ascension? Yeah, no more than 23 years after Jesus Christ's death and ascension. And, um, like I said, it contains an early Christian creed. Those phrase according to scriptures got that. Um, now, remember it says, Paul, what, for what I received, I passed on to you as a first importance. Received is kind of important. Because the um, question that scholars are debating right now in this field is, when did Paul receive and learn this creed? Because the Greek is so clear that this is not something that burbled up within his heart, um, but that he received this creed. And the question is, when? And uh, there's a group of scholars who are arguing that Paul received this creed within three years after his conversion. Okay? And they go to Galatians chapter 1, verse 18 in particular, to substantiate that. That would be, to put it in context, that's five to six years after Jesus' death. Five to six years. You know, kind of put it on a timeline. Paul's converted, travels to Jerusalem, receives a creed, which already references written gospel accounts of scripture. He mentions this in Galatians 1, 18 through 19, and you have to see it in the Greek to kind of get what's going on there, because when he says he went to go and investigate, the Greek word is hysteria, that's the verb. And it's a, it has a very particular connotation. We get the word history from it. He was going to Jerusalem to meet with Peter in order to get a historical investigation into what happened. Okay, and he spent 15, uh, 15 days with Peter. So, the way the scholars are arguing on this is now is that if this is really true, then only six to eight years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, we have a creed that references Christ's death on the cross for our sins and his resurrection. And they're arguing that the scriptures that are being referenced there are not only the Old Testament, but some of the earliest stuff in the New Testament. It's a lot earlier than we think. Which is important because then we have all these claims about Jesus coming out while Jesus' enemies are still alive. Right? Hostile witnesses are important because they can provide a cross-examination. I, I mean, if I were to tell you, you know, y'all remember you know, that space shuttle blowing up back in you know, the, you know, the 80s? You know, yeah, how it launched off launch pad and that UFO came down from Battlestar Galactica and then shot it out of the sky and it just like destroyed half of New York City? You'd be sitting there going, what are you talking about? That's not how I remember it. You know, 
Krista McCollum, the teacher, she died now. It's horrible. I remember where I was. A senior in high school. I remember I was studying for a final. And one of my friends saying, Chris, did you hear the space shuttle blow up? You're lying. No, really, it did. Go look at the television. I remember classes were canceled. I remember where I was. There's all these events in our life and we remember where we were. And the crucifixion is kind of like one of those things. And the life of Christ was so monumental that people knew where they were. And there were people who hated Jesus because <coughs> if they didn't hate him, they wouldn't have put him on the cross. They wanted him dead. So, these claims about Jesus from these eyewitnesses, if they were embellishing or creating legends about his life, then the hostile witnesses would have had means, motive, and opportunity to basically say, you guys are full of it. You know that tomb wasn't empty. We can show you the body right now. But what did the, what did the hostile witnesses say? Oh, the disciples stole the body. Well, what are they admitting when they say that? The tomb was empty. <laughs> okay. And so let's go back to these tests. Internally, we've got this test. This is called the internal evidence test. You look at what the document claims about itself. Gospel of John begins with these wonderful words. Narke Malagas, Kailagas, Postum, Deo, Atheos, Kalagas. Beautiful Greek. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. Without him, it was not anything made that was made. And the word became flesh. How does Isaiah say? Emmanuel, God with us. And we have seen his glory. The glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John writes in his first epistle. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have touched, concerning the word of life. The life was manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim it to you, and proclaim to you eternal life that was with the Father and was made manifest to us. These are men whose lives were turned on their heads. They suffered martyrdom, most of them. All for what? Claiming that God broke into our world? That God did everything he could to save us? And that we murdered him? But that didn't have the last say. He rose again from the dead, conquered sin, death and the devil for us on our behalf. Who is this? This is the God written about in the Old Testament. He's here. He tabernacled in our presence. And we've got to tell you about him. We've got to tell you who he is and what he's done for you. God is not helpless up in heaven going, oh, what am I going to do? Conquered. He's entered into our existence. He's borne our sufferings and shame. And he was pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. These men spoke as eyewitnesses, not legend makers. 
And they were common, ordinary guys. And they turned the world upside down. Dr. Craig Hazen again says, you simply do not find this kind of empirical, this isn't even a word, I had a spell check on it, I have to talk to Hazen about this one. <laughs> Verificationist. <clears throat> you simply cannot find this kind of empirical, verificationist language in the Bahadva Gita, the Granth, the Tripitaka, or the Quran. The writers of the New Testament were obsessed with this kind of language because something astounding had happened right in their midst in broad daylight for all to see. And from this standpoint, this kind of language sets the New Testament apart as a unique type of religious literature, spiritually edifying and empirically testable. Nothing else even comes close. So we go back. Disneyland idea. Spectrum of authority regarding hell. I assume and presuppose that you can talk all you want about the afterlife and give me all of your theories as to what you think is going to happen. But unless you have empirical evidence to back it up, and you can show me that you have the same authority as Walt Disney to talk about Disneyland when it comes to the hell, to hell, then I don't really, or anything, I don't really need to listen to you because I got better things to do with my time. So, mystics, yeah, that's not going to get as much. Because it's really hard to tell the difference between a move of the Holy Spirit and a piece of bad sushi that's sitting in your intestines. <laughs> Philosophers, maybe a little bit more than mystics, but, you know, they have a tendency to overthink things. <laughs> and then there's Jesus Christ, the humble carpenter of Nazareth, who died and rose again, claimed to be God in human flesh. So the New Testament biographies tell us Jesus claimed to be the one true God in human flesh. Not just saying, oh God, he even claimed to be Zeus. Thank God. I don't need another, I don't need anyone trying to zap me with thunderbolts. It doesn't sound very fun. He claimed to be the God of the Jews in the flesh. He proved his claim by raising, you know, to deity by raising himself from the dead three days after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And his resurrection was witnessed by over 500 people. Now, does this give us this thing called absolute certainty? Are you 100% sure this is the case? No. Historical investigation cannot give you 100% certainty. It can't. You can't recreate this event. You can't test to see what, whether or not if you test Jesus under the the litmus paper, whether it turned blue or red or anything like that. Historiography is a science, but it's a science that only gives you high probability. So, are you brave enough to ask the questions? Are you threatened by people who want to investigate? Who is to say they don't understand? How can this possibly be? Jesus has no problem with it. Because it's God the Holy Spirit who inspired the Apostle Paul to say if Christ is not raised, then our faith is in vain. And that's true. So no questions are out of bounds. No investigation. This is really a threat. Because the evidence is there. 
be supported. And ultimately, the chasm between the evidence, touch, see, it's I. The ghost does not have flesh and blood as you see that I have. The difference between the evidence and hakuriosmu katateosmu, my Lord and my God, that's faith. And that's a gift of God. And those are my presuppositions. The idea here is is that Christianity has nothing to fear from honest investigation. It doesn't. In fact, uh, human uh, history shows that there are many people who set out to disprove the claims of Christianity. Jesus Christ, Him crucified and raised again, and uh, and the evidence, well, confronted them with something they weren't prepared to deal with. The evidence confronted them with the living and risen Savior who died for their sins. Many of these people ended up repenting and becoming Christians. So there you have it. That's my presupposition speech. I apologize again for the poor audio quality. That was completely out of my hands. Uh, but to help, you do have my uh, my PowerPoint uh, slides available to help decipher some of this. So uh, with that, we're, we'll end the program today, and hopefully we'll be able to clean up uh, more of the audio for the debate for tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith, but uh, you know that's you know step number one. Now, uh, <laughs> if you'd like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address: talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or ask to be my friend on Facebook: facebook.com forward slash pirate christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there: pirate christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and His vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Hey, and if you don't support us, visit our website. Join our crew. Amen. Amen.